Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Today, we're jumping back into a really cool topic that we've discussed on Critical Value before. That topic is apprenticeships. And y'all remember back in episode 42, how we talked about how apprenticeships offer non-traditional routes to quality jobs and they attract diverse candidates and develop a highly skilled workforce and help to provide financial stability. Of course, you remember that. But we wanted to come back with a different slant. One reason why I think apprenticeships are so compelling is that they are all about giving young people a different way to get where they want to go through on-the-job training in a real workplace. They can be a great option for building a career when heading to college is not the right fit, which is true for a lot of young people. I mean, even for those kids that graduate high school, only 70% go on to start some form of college program. And so not to cherry pick here, but I have a colleague who strongly agrees. Here in the U.S., we've had this college for all mentality for such a long time that, you know, you have people in high school who are like, for whatever reason, I don't want to go to college or I don't want to go directly into college, do that training. I want a different alternative. There's not a lot of alternatives out there for them. And it's a real shame because there's just a lot of people in this country who learn better by doing, and we should have alternatives for them. That's Diana Elliott. She's a principal research associate at Urban. Even in my own family, I have one child who's really sort of a studier who likes to be in school. And I have another child who really likes to learn by doing. We should have opportunities for kids, however they're oriented and however they approach things. Apprenticeships are viewed traditionally in the trade space. So think mechanics, plumbers, construction workers, or electricians. But they can really be found and created in any field. And they often lead to high-paying positions with average starting salaries of more than $50,000 and an 87% employment rate, all without the burden of student loan debt. So according to Diana, it's clear that apprenticeships can change life trajectories for people in meaningful ways. Well, the goal of this project was really to expand apprenticeships in tech. And the AMF opportunity was written in a really open and general way to foster innovation. And we explicitly said, tech is so right for this opportunity. There's a couple reasons why tech was a really ripe opportunity. A lot of times there's not really entry-level positions in tech. You have to come to an entry-level position with like two years of work experience. So how do people get that work experience in the first place? Since June 2019, with the support of the Department of Labor, Urban has supported employers with hosting registered tech apprenticeships through a project called the Apprenticeship Expansion and Modernization Fund, or AMF for short. So far, this partnership supports over 1,400 apprenticeships in 35 occupations with 20 employer partners. One of the things that we want to find out from the AEMF efforts and the project in general is, you know, what does it take to set up tech apprenticeship programs in the sort of tech apprenticeship ecosystem? And I'm calling it a tech apprenticeship ecosystem because this not only involves providing financial supports and technical assistance for employers, but it also involves understanding what supports community partners need, what supports education partners need, and what role this financing takes. That's Fernando Hernandez-Lepe, the research analyst at Urban. He's been working on the AMF project for about a year. When we talk about technical assistance, we're talking about providing knowledge resources to employers and partners, 
both based on what we've acquired along the way in our research in the apprenticeship space, but also in providing hard technical assistance resources. And the technical assistance also includes, one, connecting employers with community colleges and other avenues for hiring apprentices, two, providing modest funding to help employers offset costs related to registering apprentices, and three, working with employers to select occupations and develop training plans for the newly registered apprenticeship programs. So that's some of the technical background of what apprenticeship can look like. But let's go to another kind of expert. Here is Crystal Yeoman. Crystal is an apprentice now at Paragon Cyber Solutions in Tampa, Florida. Cybersecurity is a field dedicated to protecting the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. So that includes preventing the information from being corrupted by either accident or malicious activity. Crystal has a bachelor's degree in management information systems. And after taking a break from the workforce to raise her family, she went back and earned a master's degree in cybersecurity in 2019. But when she hit the job market, she found that most employers were looking for people with several years of experience. It's interesting because people want you to have three to five years experience coming out of college, but I don't know how you're supposed to get that. Even internships won't quite give you the three to five years. But if you have an internship, you have more of a chance of getting your foot in the door at a company. Crystal was thinking creatively when she responded to an ad for an administrative assistant position at Paragon and struck a deal with her new boss. I said to her, I could be your administrative assistant if you could help me learn some cybersecurity skills, get some job experience with that. She agreed to let me come on, said that she didn't really have anything in place. Shortly thereafter, she got this cybersecurity apprenticeship program going with the state of Florida at the company, asked me if I wanted to be a part of that. And I said, of course, yes, I would like to. So I was already working as an apprentice, but I got to get more into the meat of the apprenticeship through that state of Florida program. So she got a foot in the door, but she wasn't really sure what to expect from the program. I just figured I would be learning under a master. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie Karate Kid, but I figured I would be kind of like the wax on, wax off. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on. Wax off. I'm learning all of these different small skills that I don't quite understand how it connects with cybersecurity overall, but I'm being told to wax on and wax off. So that's what I'm going to do. And then later on, I will see how it all connects. So what's cool is Crystal recently passed her Security Plus exam, an important certification in the cybersecurity field and one that many employers require. We have apprenticeship meetings where we have a teacher. Right now, we have Tanisha Martin from Black Girls Hack. She teaches our classes and we're learning about Security Plus. So she's training us to take the Security Plus exam. So I really find the apprenticeship meetings very helpful. I've been introduced to a lot of tools through working with labs and then also various online tools to help build your skill set. Crystal is off to a great start. And urban expert Fernando says a lot more people like her could benefit. But here's the catch. While apprenticeships are popular in other countries, the model hasn't really caught on widely in the U.S., In fact, between 1999 and 2016, computer science and information technology system programs registered only 2,000 apprenticeships, barely over 100 a year. I'm from Chile and I've done some work there. There have been some efforts there to sort of take up the models of apprenticeship that exist in uh, Germany and Australia and England and in trying to apply those in Chile. 
I mean, the U.S., there's been less of that effort. But why? Fernando and Diana say other countries think about workforce skills differently than the U.S. Apprenticeships are a great way for social mobility for employees. That said, why are they not more prevalent in the U.S.? I think this has to do a bit with the way that we fathom work and the way that we think of, especially in the tech space, that you need to go to university, then you might need to go to graduate school. So in that sense, I think the way that we fathom work doesn't connect well with the way that apprenticeships work. I think part of the reason why it's really undiscovered is just there's a lack of awareness, right? In contrast to Germany and Switzerland, where it's part of the training culture, where something like half to 60 to 70% of young people go into apprenticeships instead of straight into higher education. It's a very different approach. But the opportunity is there. Fernando contends that there's often a mismatch in the skills students acquire through college relative to the skills needed by employers. This mismatch is because university partners are not speaking with employers, employers aren't speaking with education partners, and apprenticeships really are a great way to address the specific needs of employers through on-the-job training and related technical instruction that could be provided by education partners. That, to me, is a huge finding because this sort of speaks to the fact that folks coming out of university may not have the skills that employers actually need, and apprenticeships could not only save folks money on university debt, but also it could be just a quicker way to actually get into a path that can take you into the tech space. And this mismatch is also a huge missed opportunity when it comes to young people in this country getting great jobs. I think another area that we saw that was really sort of ripe for potential with tech is that there are so many job openings in tech, something like 500,000 job openings and only 50,000 people graduating with CS degrees nationwide you really have a huge mismatch between the needs and what's being produced in these traditional sort of training programs. Another critical point, apprenticeships can bring more inclusivity and diversity into the tech space. White male employees still dominate the tech workforce. Only 26% of computer support specialists are women and about 28% are Latinx or Black. Apprenticeship programs are working to change that. Tech has a real diversity issue. When you talk to tech employers, they're really aware that a lot of their workforce is, frankly, white men. And they're not innovating necessarily because the way you innovate is you include perspectives from everyone. So I think there's an awareness that apprenticeship could be that solution to creating a more diverse workplace. Right now, we're working with a consortium of historically Black colleges and universities to set up a pipeline of tech apprentices from HBCUs to go into the tech space. These efforts are aimed at getting Black, Brown, and Indigenous people and women, and especially women of color, into the tech space. I think it's really important for Black, Brown, and Indigenous people to understand that these tech apprenticeship space are vital tools to get into a space that historically they've not been very welcome, that there's been lots of barriers of entry for them to get into. And it's a really low cost way to get in. And the reality is that many employers see diversity in the workplace as a big benefit. I think diversity in the workplace adds to the bottom line. You really start to see innovation happening. And when innovation happens, companies are able to thrive and their people can thrive with them. Innovation really comes from thinking outside the box. So if you're always surrounded by people who think like you and look at things the way that you do, you're continually going to be in a rut and you're not going to be able to innovate. 
That's Sarah Boisvert, the founder and CEO of two organizations in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Fab Lab Hub, a contract manufacturing company, and the New Collar Network, which developed and issues digital badge microcertifications. She's been employing apprentices for years. It's a really effective tool because there are a lot of communities where people have not had the opportunity to go to college. And I'm thinking particularly of the Native Americans and our Latino community here. So my motivation was really to reach those underserved populations. They may not necessarily just be on the reservation. Some of them are white rural kids. We're a very rural state. We have children and young people in rural towns that don't have opportunities. I saw our company not just as a way to fund the development of trainings, but also as a way to give hands-on, earn-as-you-learn opportunities to people of really of all walks of life. Sarah recently hired Jed Beto, a former restaurant worker who was laid off during the pandemic. I wasn't working for a while. And then my girlfriend is taking classes at uh, the community college. And she had an email about just some 3D printing class. Turns out it was the new collar network. I got hired in the cohort of apprentices and Bishbang Bosch, I'm here. So far, he's delved into coding for electronics, 3D printing, and laser engraving. I've got two years of being an apprentice. And then after those two years, I'm guaranteed a full team member position. And I'm planning on keeping it. I like being in the manufacturing space. Jed says if he knew of this program 15 years ago, he might have skipped out on college altogether. It is a barrier of entry that almost seems classes. With apprenticeships, you just have to have the drive. You don't have to have these things that historically have been, up until only recently, only accessible by the nobility. It's for people that have the drive, that want to do better, and maybe necessarily don't have the means, but they need that little lucky break. A final benefit, and maybe the most compelling one for employers, is dollars and cents. As in, will creating an apprenticeship program at my business pay off? It's basically a bottom line question at the end. They want to know, how are these reimbursements going to affect my profitability? How is this technical assistant in setting up this tech apprenticeship program going to affect my productivity? When we talk about public monies for reimbursements, when we talk about sort of technical support through the federal government. I think some employers might view having to pay someone to receive training as some sort of welfare, but it's not that. It's that they're paying apprentices, which are employees in a sense, to learn on the job and to acquire some deep learning that you don't necessarily get through university training. This isn't welfare. This isn't that they're giving handouts to people. This is a way for them to create pipelines for talent and for them to create talent. Fernando says employers see a return on investment for registered apprenticeship programs of about $1.50 for every $1 invested in an apprenticeship by the second year of employment. Workers that come through apprenticeship programs tend to be more engaged with the company and tend to stay longer. So you actually reduce turnover and reduce HR costs. And to some degree, it also impacts the work culture positively because it adds an avenue for breaking away from the traditional sort of male, white dominated space and brings in a pipeline for other folks to come in and sort of change the narrative at work. And for states like New Mexico, employers are often refunded to offset program costs. In the state of New Mexico, 
our WIOA, which is the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act that Congress pretty much always refunds because it's just a terrific program. And the funds are channeled down to the states and the states then are able to support employers bringing in new people and getting them trained. It's really a a great deal for both the worker and for the employer. And for the employer, you get a chance to really see if somebody's going to work out. Okay, let's get a little reality check here. We've learned that tech apprenticeships can diversify the workforce, boost economic mobility, and also create opportunities for employees to learn and produce high-quality work while earning wages and developing rewarding careers. And it can lead to bigger benefits and costs by lowering turnover for employers. Whoa. So by my count, that is a win, 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 win. But you also heard me say earlier that there are relatively few apprenticeship programs here in the U.S. So as Keenan Thompson, as DeAndre Cole might say on Saturday Night Live, what's up with that? Here's Fernando. We've had some difficulties in keeping employers engaged, understanding that The registration process is difficult. It's a bit cumbersome and it changes state to state or it changes whether you do a nationally registered program. So that does have some levels of complexity. And so employers that do want to set up an apprenticeship program have really difficult problems in trying to figure out how to go about the registration process to find candidates for their apprenticeship programs. And, you know, time is money and a lot of this is really expensive. State registration processes are really confusing. There's something like 30 plus different processes. There's a national way to register a program, and then 27 or so states have their own state apprenticeship agency, and they're not all the same processes. So having to figure that out is really complicated. Diana says that the Department of Labor supporting intermediary organizations could help solve a host of issues. Urban is playing that role right now. We're serving as an intermediary. We're helping to make all of those connections because we have that subject matter expertise. But it hasn't necessarily been a big focus of the U.S. system. And I think there could be a really important growing role for intermediaries who really understand how to navigate these issues and have the subject matter expertise to develop programs for employers. Coordination is a challenge as well. From our experience working in Texas and in California, for instance, um, the Bay Area has a few different community colleges in there, and they're all trying to work together to build out an apprenticeship pipeline for the tech companies in the Bay Area. And it's very challenging for them to not only coordinate their resources among themselves, but it's also been challenging to communicate to the apprenticeship offices in the state and to also convince employers that they need to come into these communities in the Bay Area and sometimes some underrepresented communities in the Bay Area and get talent locally rather than having to bring folks from outside. And there are also internal barriers. Here's Diana. Sometimes we've seen programs falter a little bit because they cannot get the agreement of higher ups or (laughs) legal will get involved and have to review things and that slows everything way down and sometimes means that things don't move forward. So it can be a challenge within organizations, large organizations in particular, to keep a program moving forward and to get it to the finish line. One of the things that we're learning is that it's really important to have an internal champion at some of these workplaces. We've seen programs move forward really quickly in part because there's somebody who has been empowered 
or is passionate about moving it forward and have that charisma and sort of dedication to kind of just convince various parties in the organization that this is really important. And sometimes employers are just too busy to tackle the start of something new. There's one employer that we have been talking to since the start of this project, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen, that we're going to work with them. And in part, it's because they are so busy, they can't return our calls. So if you're so busy and so swamped, the idea of bringing in someone to train them just feels like a huge and insurmountable task. But again, it just gets into that repetitive cycle then of overwork and not training. And at some point, you've got to stop and start training people and bringing people on board to learn what you're doing so you can be more efficient at the workplace. So the barriers to employers, registration, coordination, startup costs, they're all legit. Given the potential payoffs in terms of building a highly skilled workforce and creating new workforce on-ramps and creating stability for the employer, not to mention lower costs, well, you can see why we came back to this topic for additional critical value airtime. Let's have Fernando wrap us up with some closing thoughts. I just imagine people with kids that have to choose between having to work or having to go to university because they really can't do both. Having to have space to go to a tech apprenticeship and learn the same skill they can learn at a university and get paid at the same time. That to me is a great model to target parts of the labor market that before have been really not accessible to some communities to give them access and on top of that, pay them for that. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, diversifying the tech industry won't happen overnight. To do it well, we need to build the talent pipeline early, think beyond the four-year degree and pursue outside of the box solutions like tech apprenticeships. Two, the benefits to tech apprenticeships are abundant. They match the training with the exact skills employers need. They open up opportunities to workers beyond the usual tech pipeline, and they put people on a path to well-paying jobs in a competitive industry. And three, there are still real barriers to employers to take up tech apprenticeships. But the fact that the payoff is $1.50 for every dollar invested may make it worthwhile for many employers in the future. So that's our show. Big thank you to everyone we spoke with to make this episode possible. Diana Elliott, Fernando Hernandez-Lepe, Crystal Yeoman, Sarah Boisvert, and Jed Beto. Our producers for this episode were several. Big ups to behind-the-scenes superstar Jacinth Jones, as well as Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, and Veronica Gaetan. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, including my two kids who continue to be co-producers, this is Justin Milner signing off. Hi, everybody. I hope you learned a lot about apprenticeships. Bye. I hope you have fun for the other podcast.